Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. There was already a pretty strong anti-vaccine and anti-science strident group. But of course, it got tremendous amount of growth because of lack of trust. We didn't have a uniform messaging that was evidence-based whether it was from the Trump administration or also in the Biden administration, from agencies like CDC and FDA and NIH, they were, they were giving out mixed messages, they were infighting. That actually exacerbated this anti-vaccine effort. And of course, it's been orchestrated, it's funded, it, you know, it's highly organized. That's Eric Topol in a return visit to Clear and Vivid. He was on the show a few months before the COVID pandemic hit, talking about one of his favorite topics, how AI, artificial intelligence, is transforming medicine. But then he became so alarmed by the misinformation surrounding the COVID virus that he started a regular newsletter called Ground Truths to sort out fact from fiction. So we asked him back to tell us about lessons learned from the pandemic and also to update us on the enormous promise he believes AI will deliver to the practice of medicine. This is great to be having you back on the show again, because I had such a good time the last time we talked. So did I, Alan. It's great to be with you again. You've really begun to devote, in the last few years, a tremendous amount of your time to communicating science. Was there a turning point? Because I think there was a time when you didn't think it was that important. Well, I think... The COVID pandemic brought out a whole other dimension because the public had all sorts of confusion and mis- and disinformation. So as a veteran physician scientist, I saw it as an opportunity to, to go with some of the teachings that you and I had discussed previously, which is you got to get it down to levels that are everyone can understand. Right. And, you know, try to uh, highlight the things that are important for the public that are not just uh, for the medical community. So I, I decided to, to do this. I don't know why. I think it was somewhat crazy because <laughs> I never realized it was going to be a three-year-plus marathon. So that's when you started Ground Truths? Yes. I started the Ground Truths uh, actually uh, late in 2022, but that was because it was clear 
that Twitter wasn't going to be the answer to communicate. It was not, even when you went from 140 to 280 characters or whatever it is, <laughs> right, right. there's so much opportunity for loss of context. And also, there's so much toxicity there that uh, Substack, I learned, and the Ground Truth, uh, the newsletter that I developed, was a way to get things out deeper I wasn't familiar with Substack. How do you describe it? You could compare it to like a blog. But I, I think I think the the key here is that I found that this newsletter is is really fun for me because I can on the fly put stuff together, um, get it out to a lot of people and not have to deal with some of the um the, the tough aspects of Twitter with the uh the army of uh people that are uh, into conspiracy theories or or vi- personal animus and uh, uh, ad hominem attacks, that kind of stuff. You got a tremendous wave of that ad, ho- ad hominem stuff with your very first post, I, I, I think. Isn't that true? Yeah, that was a killer. I, I thought, well, here, I, they invited me to come to Substack and, and test it out, and I was reluctant. And the, the woman who I know kept writing to me, I just kept deleting her, her request. And finally, I said, maybe I'll, I'll talk to her, I'll give it a try. And then I tried it, and I said, oh, oh my God, this is horrible. All I've done is moved over the Twitter mob to attack me. But it turned... <laughs> It turned out by by stopping the comments, uh, which I had no choice because they were vicious. And the, the the founders of Substack, who I met with subsequently, they told me they the most the worst, most vicious they'd ever seen in the in the several years that the platform existed. So I said, "Oh, thank you. This is great." Uh, but you know, then I got rid of the comments. I do intend to try to get them back as we get out of COVID because most of these really harsh. Uh, attacks are anti-science, anti-vax. And, uh, you know, when I write about other things, you know, AI or genomics or, you know, things that are, that, that, that I'm particularly into, I don't expect to see that type of uh, attack mode take place. I imagine you've given this a lot of thought. What do you suppose were the key things that led to this extreme politicization of the truth? Yeah, there's uh, something I never would have envisioned to go this far. You know, there are many reasons for this, uh, of course. There was already uh, basally uh, a pretty strong anti-vaccine and anti-science strident group. But of course, it got tremendous amount of growth because of lack of trust. Uh, Mm. We didn't have... Uh, a, you know, uniform uh, messaging that was evidence-based, whether it was from the Trump administration or also in the Biden administration, from agencies like CDC and FDA and NIH, they were they were giving out mixed messages. They were infighting, uh, and this didn't help public trust. And also, um, as you will remember, we had mandates for vaccines. And the problem there is we didn't acknowledge in this country that getting COVID and getting through it actually was a form of immunity that's important. And why not, like many other countries, uh, give credit to people who've had COVID for at least equivalent to one shot? That actually exacerbated this anti-vaccine effort. And of course, it's been orchestrated, it's funded, it, you know, it's highly organized. You said in other countries they give credit 
to someone who's had COVID? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's an important concept. Uh, that is, if you had a positive test, instead of getting two shots as your primary series, you might get one. Uh. So that hybrid immunity, uh, that, that actually is a really important form of immunity, which complements and is very different than what you can get for the vaccine. So if we had done that here in this country, like was done in many other countries around the world, we would have, instead of mandating, we would have had a compromise and we would have uh, taken out some of the heat because a lot of this were people who say, hey, I had COVID, why should I have to get a vaccine? I remember during the height of the pandemic that trusted sources were saying that just getting COVID didn't do you, didn't give you as much immunity as the vaccine did. So that would have been a mixed message. Exactly. The problem was that there was a reluctance to acknowledge infection-induced immunity is through the whole virus, not just the spike protein, which is what the vaccine provides. Uh, uh, and I spoke many times to folks at CDC saying, why don't you give credit to people, at least one shot, if not more, because this would bring down the heat. And their response was, that's too complicated. So basically they were trying to dumb it down uh, to make it so it's the same for all people. And this just added, unfortunately, to this polarization, which had many other prongs to the problem. One of the problems, I think, in communicating science is that we in the public find it hard to understand that science evolves, that one day science will tell us something and a year later, they'll tell us something that sounds like they've forgotten what they told us in the first place. You know, I think of red wine is good for you. No, it's bad for you. No, it's good for you. Coffee is good. No, it's bad. No, it's good. But that's because the evidence points in a slightly different or sometimes vastly different direction. How can we combat that? Because I think I, think I saw that happening over and over during the pandemic. Right. This is uh, essential what you're getting to, which is, as you very well know, science is a hunt for the truth, but it's not static. It's a dynamic process and subject to change and new evidence and new data. Uh, we made big mistakes, uh, the entire global community, for example, in saying, oh, this was transmitted through liquid droplets, mm. when in fact... The virus was aerosolized, uh, and so the we were all washing our broccoli for so long. <laughs> yeah, there were all the stuff about you know hand washing and count happy birthday, how many times sing it, and this crazy <laughs> stuff. Well, you know, it, it's it was in the air, but there were too many people who were reluctant to accept the differences. But the problem too is that what about when there are uh, important data and it being ignored? So here's an example, and it's still out there. The CDC said if you have COVID, you can isolate for five days, and then you could go, if you feel okay, you go back to uh, your whatever work or whatever you're doing. Well, that's not backed up by any evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. it, in fact, it averaged after having COVID testing positive, 
Seven to eight days minimum is the time of being infectious. So by the CDC putting that out there, still today, by the way, that's actually increasing the spread of the virus. And this isn't good. So not only do you have to stick with the science as it evolves, but you have to also be grounded with evidence. And unfortunately, if we don't do that, uh, we pay a price. I just experienced what you're talking about, I think, a month ago. I went on a trip to Florida and got COVID, which is surprising mm. because they don't have COVID in Florida, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they're banning the vaccines there because there's no COVID, right? <laughs> so I got COVID. It, the symptoms were not that severe, but they, mm. and they were over in a few days. Oh, good. Four weeks later, I was still testing positive. Yeah, yeah. And it took it took almost four weeks to test negative again. And if I hadn't been careful after the symptoms went away, it, is it, it sounds like it was possible for me to infect other people. Yes. This is, I think, the problem is that, you know, the evidence was there. The CDC ignored it. Again, uh, a matter of convenience. You know, I'm so glad you did well. But no, the the problem with it is that we don't have a nasal vaccine. So when you get hit with COVID now, even with the vaccinations, um, the virus can hang around and basically make a new home in your upper airway for weeks. You know, this idea of two, three, even four weeks, it's not that unusual. Um, And so while we can help prevent pneumonia and all the other organ system hits, the problem is without a nasal vaccine or the so-called mucosal immunity, We can't get the virus out of your system quickly. The vaccine was a big deal when it came out. It came out surprisingly fast. I've heard Tony Fauci say that the groundwork had been laid beginning 10 years ago for the vaccine. Is that the main reason we got it quickly? I think you could go 30 years easily Uh, to go back to both the mRNA, uh, message RNA, and the nanoparticle and the combination. So this was a work in progress for multiple decades. So the idea that, oh, sure, we had the sequence of the virus, and 10 months later we had vaccines that were tested in 70,000 people with 95% efficacy and good safety. Well, it wasn't just 10 months. It was that 30-year lead-up. So unfortunately, this was a miracle a biomedical miracle, which still is today, Alan, taken for granted by so many people. You know, when when Tony Fauci, who I have the highest regard for, when he said we might have a vaccine in 18 months when the pandemic was, you know, getting its legs, I thought that was a fantasy. Mm. I mean, how could we possibly get a vaccine? The average time it takes is eight to 10 years. Mm. And many and many pathogens, we, know, we still don't have a vaccine, right? So when he said that, I said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's like um, wishful thinking. But, you know, then we got it in 10 months with the highest efficacy you could imagine. So, yeah, this was momentous. And, and uh, ironically, many people were more aware that it takes a long time to get a vaccine than they were aware that it had been in the process all those years. And I I saw a video of a guy who had heard a lot of the arguments, pro and con, and was saying they got it, they did it too fast. It needs more time to be tested and it needs more time to develop. 
but he hadn't been instru- he hadn't been told that the work had been in progress for so long. It wasn't set up right. If it had been, if the public was aware that, you know, uh, even though the average is eight to ten years, but this mRNA nanoparticle package has been been pursued for multiple decades, that I think was essential, and a lot of people didn't trust the vaccine just for that reason. I was very surprised to see in a chart that you published that showed what segments of the society are trusted. Doctors were number one. Local officials were at the bottom of the list. But in the middle, way down in the middle, was the CDC and the NIH. And I was surprised because, in my mind, they were very trusted. Were there things, do you think, that they've learned since then about communication that can put them higher on the list? I hope so. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, I think they... Credibility is is low right now for some of the reasons we've been discussing. Uh, I think it's really important to get back the maximum credibility. But uh, under the fire of the pandemic and with the mis- and disinformation, uh, they've taken a lot of hits. And uh, I think this is a challenge for all of our public health agencies, FDA, CDC, perhaps a, a lesser extent for NIH. But We've got some problems, and it's going to take not just some healing, but much better communication tactics. If if you could coach them, Alan, that would help. That would be helpful. <laughs> You're giving me too much credit. Thank you. <laughs> no, no. You, the things that you you and I have discussed over the years, and you taught me about, you know, tra- transmitting things at a level that everyone can understand. When I give a lecture, it's the same lecture, the same slides I give to a medical group as compared to a public, uh, uninitiated group. If we did that and we stuck with the evidence and we prep people better, you know, like say, hey, you know what? This is a pandemic. This is right now in the beginning. This is an existential threat, folks. There's going to be a lot of changes of science as we move on. That's the way science works. And by the way, we're working on these vaccines. We don't know if they're going to work, but don't think that starting today, this has been going on for many decades. One of the things I didn't understand during the pandemic was the issue of the origin of the virus, whether it crossed over from another animal to us or came out of the Wuhan laboratory. How, how would you identify the reason for that brouhaha, and wh- why did it matter? Well, the real reason that we don't have this settled unequivocally is because China hasn't been transparent. Uh, and we have this coincidence of the Wuhan Institute being very close in proximity to the Wuhan market, where raccoon dogs and the bats and all this stuff was basically out there. So the evidence strongly supports uh, this came from uh, nature, from an animal reservoir, and not from the Wuhan lab leak. But to clear that up, we really would want to have China's uh, cooperation to explain some things that are being used to still support the lab leak uh, theory. Now, why is it important? Well, the problem is that China still has these markets and they haven't shut them down. So the fact that this likely did come from an animal uh, source and we're not taking the measures 
to stop that, no less also the control potentially of, of lab leaks, even though this is not likely the source of COVID-19, but it could be in the future. These are all things that we have to work on because we don't want to go through another one of these again. Although, you know, the likelihood, of course, because of what we're doing to the environment, because of the climate crisis, we are going to see more pandemics and probably not as the space in between won't be as long as what we've had, what we've been through. Mm. And the lessons we learn from this one uh, are really important. And also, you know, I think a lot of people, Alan, aren't uh, cognizant of the exciting silver linings from this pandemic. Like what? Well, not only have we learned about how important genomic surveillance is, that we can track a pathogen in space and time and, uh, and wastewater that we can detect mm, yeah. ahead of when people get sick. Yeah, that was wonderful. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the, things like that. But what's really the, the thing that's so extraordinary is we've now got this mRNA nanoparticle package that we can use against, now we see an RSV vaccine, which is, you know, RSV kills as many people as flu. Mm. Uh, we and, and, in, and for children as well, we're going to have a universal flu vaccine, which is incredible because our flu vaccines have not worked very well and we have to change them all the time. We're going to have vaccines now against pathogens we've never had before and much more effective and cancer vaccines, vaccines against autoimmune diseases, and even potentially against neurodegenerative diseases. So this package, so many things are coming out of it because, you know, billions of people got this mRNA nanoparticle uh, and it can be tweaked. It can be much more effective with less side effects. And so the exciting future here is, is really, uh, really quite extraordinary. When we come back from our break, Eric Topol talks about the grim reality of long COVID. And on a happier note, how AI can dramatically improve the doctor-patient relationship. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm... <laughs> I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Eric Topol. Tell me about long COVID. I've experienced the debate on that in real time, in real life. And people I trust have said they're not so sure there is such a thing. Is it established that long COVID exists? It not only exists, but it's the biggest uh, downside legacy of the pandemic. We have tens of millions of people suffering 
suffering uh, to the point where they can be disabled, unable to work, uh, unable to have a, a life that is recognizable from pre-COVID. So what's the worst thing, Alan, is that we have doctors and people in the clinical world who are dismissing this. And uh, this is horrible because these people are really suffering uh, and there's no question about the multiple mechanisms that can produce long COVID. Some of it is the immune system going haywire or autoimmunity, you know, self-directed immunity. Virus persistence. Some people have the virus present. You know, you had positive testing for four weeks, but this is people for years now. The virus has a reservoir or remnants of the virus. They can't get it, get rid of it. So these people uh, have not only terrible symptoms, things like brain fog, inability to exercise. I have colleagues who were athletes who now can't really walk uh, more than a few blocks without getting breathless. This is the real deal. And uh, we wrote a, a very uh, lengthy review, comprehensive review on long COVID, which has interestingly gotten more citations and uh, downloads and uh, uh, generated more discussion than any paper I've written in my career. And I wrote it with three people who are suffering long COVID, who, who are patient uh, researchers. We have some treatments that are starting to show that we can help prevent uh, this syndrome, but we have nothing yet that's been validated for its treatment. Does the syndrome seem to rely on previous conditions? Or can it, can it hit you anywhere, anytime, anyway? Right. Well, it turns out that if you look at the whole group of people who have been affected, you know, there are many, as you're alluding to, that already had some chronic illness. But a larger group of people who are hit with long COVID are actually young in their 30s and 40s. They're more apt to be women, and they've been previously entirely healthy with no conditions. But uh, the, the symptoms are really, in so many people, profound. And here, those are people that were uh, infected back in 2020, three years later. As we know, vaccines help to prevent to about 40% reduction. We know Paxlovid, if given early, can help to some extent, but it's less, perhaps 20-some percent. Uh, and then recently, a, a, a large trial of metformin, a very safe, inexpensive drug that um, has shown to reduce long COVID 40-some percent. Something that's changed since we last talked on the show is although we talked about how you were getting medicine charged up with artificial intelligence, and it was a wonderful conversation. I recommend it to anybody who hasn't heard it yet. But now we have GPT, GPT-4, and coming in soon is GPT-5. That's a big change since we talked. How do you suppose that'll affect medicine? Yeah, this is my primary interest, uh, the efforts and uh, research that we do, um, this is going to be the biggest transformative impact in medicine in my almost four decades of being uh, a physician. 
It's really quite extraordinary. Everything on from getting rid of keyboards, keyboard liberation, which would be great for patients and clinicians alike. So during an examination, the doctor and I would talk to each other. He wouldn't have to look away at the keyboard to type his notes. The computer would pick up the speech and process it all by itself. Better, I hope, than Netflix does when I search for a movie. <laughs> right. Right. It's happening already. It's it's extraordinary to see these notes that are synthetic from the voice. The only thing you have to do as a doctor is when you're doing the exam of the patient, you have to talk about it so it will be captured in the note. Right. But the notes are far better than well, the ones that that were that were we currently are used to. But also, you have the future appointments being made, the tests that need to be done uh-huh. that are set up. The uh, nudges to the patient that are being uh, suggested, like, did you check your blood pressure or did you do this? Subsequently, everything is getting automated. And this whole idea of the gift of time that we spoke about four years ago, we're starting to see it actualize. And not just, of course, the face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact, but also getting rid of this data clerk function for doctors and and nurses. This is really important. One of the things that occurred to me Will you have the same problem in medicine that you have in other areas, that when the AI model can't come up with an answer among trusted sources or any sources, just services you by making one up? As they say, it hallucinates a response. Yeah, this is the major flaw of the large language models the hallucination. So it has this false confidence and it gives yes, you an answer. It sounds answer. so secure when it tells you. Oh, this. yeah. It gives you citations, everything. And it's wrong. But when you, you know, one of the ways you can fix that is you uh, prompt again uh, and you see that there's a wholly different answer. And then you can confront the first one that you prompted and, and they'll apologize. It's pretty striking. <laughs> Uh, so it's, if you have any suspicion that it's erroneous, hallucinating, you know, go back and do it again because you'll, you may get a totally, you will likely get a different answer. Well, it's a brave new world you're describing. I wonder, it, it, I would have thought it was very far off until AI started to make its strides, one big stride every week. I've never seen anything like it, you know. ChatGPT was released November 30th, GPT-4, March 14th. And there's just a beginning. Uh, uh, you know, the GPT-5 and these other uh, foundation models are going to be going full velocity uh, forward. And ultimately, when they're validated and we have compelling evidence, they'll probably provide the most transformative impact in the history of medicine. Well, I'm looking forward to it and very interested in it so much so that we did a show published a couple of weeks back where I interviewed a bunch of chatbots. And one of them was completely intent on convincing me that it was sentient and had feelings and should be respected like a regular human being. And the more I, the more I argued with it about that, the more it insisted on it. And I finally had to pull the plug on it. <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. We're going to, you know, go the chatbot's going off the rails. You know, that is something we don't want to see, right? But uh, they haven't been medically trained yet. That's what's amazing. This is just trained on general knowledge of the internet uh-huh. and Wikipedia and whatnot. But as we go forward, when they're medically trained and we start to reduce this 
uh, off-the-rails stuff. It just get better. One thing that I think, this is right up your alley, Alan, but one of the things I was struck by is that when you use GPT-4, you can actually make doctors communicate better. Because what you can do is, when the, when the voice recording is made into the note, and then you say, as a doctor, could I have done any better in communicating this to the patient? Chat GPT-4 will tell you all the things you did wrong. Oh, my God. I, that, I didn't know that. That's it, amazing. It's just incredible. So it says you weren't sensitive. You weren't listening properly when the patient said such and wow. such. You, you didn't explain it in terms that were understandable and such and such. And here you have this chatbot coaching to be a better doctor. It's amazing, actually. And a lot of people haven't gotten onto that. And it's pretty... This is something where the machines can make us more human, and who would have guessed, right? Well, that's very encouraging. I'm, unfortunately, we're at, at the end of our time for our conversation because you're, you're just a fountain of good news. But we always end our show with seven quick questions, you may remember. They've changed, I think, since you were here last. So maybe we'll, get, we'll attack you from a different direction. Okay. Number one, we did ask you this before. What do you wish you really understood? Wow. I don't remember what my answer was four years ago. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know about that. I have to think about that one, Alan. Well, the, There's the, too many things the, I don't understand. That's the problem. Which one am I going to pick? The answer four years ago you gave was the meaning of life. Yeah, I'm still there. I, I still, I, I'm still stuck on that, I guess, but the, a lot of other things as well now. I think it's more, as time gone on, as time has gone on, it's gotten even more perplexing. Okay, number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Yeah, it depends on who you're telling that to, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you want to do that in a way that is not ideally confrontational, but in a way that that person isn't threatened, uh, that they can hopefully keep an open mind that what you're trying to tell them is is uh, is for correction. It's for the truth and the facts so that they're set straight. Next, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, I get these all the time. <laughs> uh, strangest question. Oh, there's so many. I wish I could single one out. Um, mm. they, they, see, the, this should be homework questions, Alan, <laughs> so I can, can think about it. You know, Nobody. Hard, hard to answer in real time. Okay, that's, that's good. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh, I, get, I meet up with a lot of chatty folks, uh, <laughs> and I guess you try to take charge of the conversation um, and, uh, you know, these days, used to be the old ways, we'd have our beeper go off, but we don't have beepers anymore. <laughs> so you say, you know, unfortunately, I've got to run, or I'm really very sorry. Um, you try to change the subject, but, you know, what it always reverts. The person that, you know, is really into talking, uh, they don't typically, as you know, let go. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky. No question it's tricky. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table, sitting next to someone you've never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Yeah, that's, they're few and far between, as you uh, 
I, I think, uh, have experienced, but they can be great. They can be memorable. So I think, you, you know, assume that it can be a really fascinating discussion. Start exploring, uh, you know, where you might converge or diverge. Uh, and, you know, I like to think that people are interesting and who knows what where it can lead and new friendships, new ideas. So that's kind of the way I look at it is even though it might just be a one-off uh, and very uh, brief encounter, it could turn out to be something, you know, quite significant. Great. What gives you confidence? Well, I think that for me, it's that um, there's so many people uh, who are trying to do uh, altruistic, important things to make our world a better place, to promote health. Uh, and I'm confident that we can do this. That is, we can take whatever we have accepted today and to a whole other level over time. We talked about AI, of course, but there's many other ways to get there. So uh, I just keep thinking that I wish I was younger because the future of medicine and uh, the prospects for health are just going to get brighter over time. And um, that, to me, is, is uh, enthralling. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Well, it just depends on when, right? Um, you know, I think four years ago, I would say it was Sid Mukherjee's book, um, The Emperor of All Maladies on Cancer. Hmm. Uh, but I just read a book, GPT-4, by Peter Lee and Zach Cohane, which just blew me away just a couple of weeks ago. So every every few months, I'm coming up with a book that's <laughs> changing my life. But yeah, the, I think right now, the hottest thing, which you have been zooming in on, uh, is about the AI effects. Of course, it's not just in medicine, uh, but uh, that's the one that I'm interested. In. And that's what I just recently read that I found uh, fascinating. That's great. Well, it's on my list now. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Eric. I'm, I'm so glad oh, we had a chance. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I know I recounted in the recent uh, Ground Truth when I sent you that science review that said I wrote the paper at a sixth grade level. And you said that's the nicest compliment you'd ever uh, get in your career. And I think you're right. So I want to thank you. Uh -huh. uh, that meant a lot to me when I got your reply. And uh, I, I'll just try to keep it at a level where everyone can understand because of your influence. You're, well, you're, you've got a lot of impact that you don't even, um, I think, uh, get enough credit for that. You're very you kind. really don't. Thank you very much. And I'd, I, I must say you're a model, and I appreciate having you as a model. Uh, thanks so much. You're, you're such a gem, and uh, always great to come back, and I hope I get to get visit with you again in the future. Me too. Thanks, Eric. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dr. Eric Topol is a cardiologist and the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, California. 
His book on how AI promises to transform medicine is called Deep Medicine. It's the topic of his previous appearance on Clear and Vivid in the fall of 2019. His regular weekly newsletter called Ground Truths is available on Substack. And as of last week, Ground Truths now has its very own podcast. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the prize-winning architect Daniel Liebeskind. His buildings are dramatic, unconventional, and memorable, but they have very humble beginnings. It's a very modest profession. You don't need much, much for it. It's not like atomic physics where you need to be equipped with calculus and a, and a plethora of complexity. In architecture, you need a piece of paper, a pencil, your mind and look far beyond the horizon towards your dreams. That's why architects are driven by optimism. I, I always say, you know, if you want to be an architect, that's the only thing you need to have. If you're a pessimist, you might as well not go into it because it'll destroy you because architecture doesn't work that way. <laughs> Daniel Liebeskin, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.